Welcome to Hired Leaders, the companion podcast to the book, Pass Fail, The Urgent Need for Strategic Leadership in Higher Education. I'm Suzanne Brinker, and with my co-host, Audra Delaney-Hall, I will be bringing you conversations with presidents and VPs at America's colleges and universities to look at how we can transform and lead our institutions for a sustainable future. Hey, Allison, it's so great to have you on the podcast. How are you today? I am great. I'm so excited to talk today with the two of you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We have been following along for a long time, all the great work that you and your team are doing at Siena, and would love to hear an update. How are things going? How are enrollments this fall? We're doing really great at Siena. This class entering this fall, I think today is Census Day, actually. So it's either going to be their fourth or fifth largest freshman class in the college's history. And before that, the the four classes we had last year were the four largest classes in Siena's history. So we're doing really great on the enrollment and bucking the trend for other colleges like us because we're small, regional, Catholic, all the things that everyone says are risk factors. A hundred percent. So the first thing I would ask is, what did you do during the pandemic? Because it sounds like you did all the right things. You were able to grow your enrollment through COVID. So want to hear the secret sauce on that. And just in general, how are you approaching enrollment marketing and brand marketing? And why are you getting such great results, do you think? Well, in COVID, it was really the college made a really smart decision and they increased the investment in marketing because they saw that the the huge risk that if we didn't. So I think what happened was a lot of colleges backed off, whereas Siena went further in and that really helped us um, create brand awareness. We have a great transfer class this year and we actually think that there's a relationship between the transfer class this year and two years ago when we had the increased marketing investment. It was quite a shot in the arm for the college. The other thing is we figured out how to stay open for visits. We did one-to-one tours. We trained our tour guides to stay six feet apart. We just worked within the parameters rather than saying it's too hard. We just kept working at it. We actually had the Department of Health come in. We had, I think it was the Department of, I'm going to say it wrong, like jobs or whatever that is for New York State. They came in and looked at what we were doing and they were like gold star. You guys are completely following the guidelines, leveraging them in a really smart way. So those two things really got us on solid footing. Investment and business. I mean, that's so fascinating to me because I think we've been following sort of the trends across the smaller arts colleges and who has grown through the pandemic and who hasn't. And we found that the ones that stayed open for visits by far outperformed the ones that didn't. Yeah. And we know how important visits are, right, in terms of converting students. But once they come to campus, they can see themselves there. They can imagine themselves in the dorms, in the classrooms, and in the activities. And it just makes a huge difference. So cutting that out for a year or two really hurts a lot of schools in a way that's going to be really difficult to bounce back from, given the enrollment decline that we're expecting from the demographic shift. And Allison, you heard from students who were part of those tours, like, what they thought of like how they like it helped shift them to want to come to Siena then go to another school or like what kind of feedback have you heard from them about it? Absolutely. I mean, across the board, visit is a huge driver. We hear that. We get it on our surveys from admitted students, whether they enroll or not, what would it impact that visit has. But part of it was when the other colleges on your list aren't 
open and you are open for visits, it does give you a leg up. So we had that. But we also were really creative about it. We did golf cart tours. We did drive through tours where the people, they stayed in the car and we get on their phone, they logged onto Zoom and they connected with an actual tour guide who walked through everything that they were seeing on the drive through tour. So we just really tried to get creative and think innovatively because we knew how important it was, not just for us, but for the student. How we kept thinking to ourselves, these poor kids, how are they supposed to make this decision in this environment right now? So we really tried our best to try to create experiences for them that help them. That's so cool. One of the things that we know you've been really focused on at Siena and focused on this um, to some extent in your dissertation um, when you earned your doctorate at Northeastern um, this this past spring, right, as when you graduated. Congratulations. Thank again. you. Thank you. So, so exciting. Is, is your focus on student experience as a driver of brand when did you make that decision as a college to really focus on student experience, to drive positive word of mouth, and to really set yourselves apart um, from your peers and competitors? So that came out of a strategic planning process, and we're in year two of that strategic plan. So it was really a college-wide initiative. And then as the marketing department, we had to think to ourselves, okay, if student experience is what we're going to hang our hat on. And that's where the vision is pointing to for the college. What does that mean for us? So we knew the benefits of the college as a whole tackling that are huge, right? Because the stronger the student experience, the stronger the word of mouth, easier for my job, right? I can't create an ad ever that's as powerful as what a student tells their friends and family about their lived experience as a saint at Siena, right? But on the other side, it made us think about how we're marketing. Because we had to look and think about the experience from the student perspective of our marketing efforts. It's not just telling all of the accolades and the great things about the institution. Those have a role. But how do you tap into that emotional connection with students? How do you truly serve them through what they say is a very anxiety-ridden, overwhelming college search process? So we really have flipped our thinking to what do they need versus what do we want to say? Yeah, I absolutely love that. It's obviously we're interested in terms of higher ed leadership and this book project in marketing strategies and tactics that work to elevate brands. But we're also really interested in how higher ed can break down those silos, right, between marketing and enrollment and faculty and the cabinet and figure out how to really lead together. And it sounds like you all figured that out in terms of using student experience, which is a strategic initiative that touches not just marketing, but student, student affairs and yeah. faculty and, and housing and everything and leverage that in marketing. So can you talk a little bit about how that decision was made, did research inform it? What did the conversations look like two years ago when you all made that decision and how have you implemented that decision since? Honestly, I think it's really mission-driven for Sienna because we kept thinking to ourselves, if not us, a Franciscan college, which is a very other-centered kind of culture, right? It's leading by putting others first. It's leading with empathy. So to us, it was a way to advance our mission and live our core values. So to us, it was that. But there, was, when you look at things like sad at student satisfaction data and stuff like that, you're like we're performing well in our minds. We thought to ourselves, but being who we are as a college, we should be the best. 
right? So that's where it led us. It was this combination of looking at some of the data, but also the opportunity to live our values and live our mission. And I think the reason that it works well, and I think it can work across other institutions, because I think when you're working on a student-centered project, we strip our egos. Yeah. And I think it brings a different tenor and tone to a task or an initiative and a collaboration that you're bringing together. Because when you center it on the student and you center it on the data and what students say, it's easier to put yourself behind. It's not about what I want or what I think. It's about what the student needs and, and what their perspective is. And so I think that any kind of student-centered initiative helps break down those silos in a very organic and natural way. Yeah. And so do you feel that over the last few years as you've been working on this, that you've seen shifts even in Sienna's faculty, staff, and administrative culture because of this emphasis on student and what it can do to change the way that people view the conversations they have with students, but the conversations and the projects and the way that they also work with each other? Yes, I have two examples. So the first example is we built a new marketing strategy, as I was mentioning before or alluding to, and we brought all different kinds of people to the table. It was focused on prospective students. We had financial aid at the table. We had um, enrollment data and systems people. We had enrollment management. We had admissions. We had communications. We had the experience team, which is they play a key role in the transition and onboarding piece of our student experience. And of course, the marketing team. And a lot of times marketing strategies are built from the marketing team. You don't bring in all of these other voices. But what we have found by doing that is every single person to a T reported that they have changed their daily work. So it wasn't about just what was created in the plan and the strategy, although everyone who worked on it is still advancing the ideas and the action items that came out of that, and voluntarily so. They asked to. They're leading different pieces of it. But the bigger thing is behavior. Brand is in behavior in a way. So we're changing our daily work, changing our approach, and everyone reported that. And then the second thing is where I would say wider campus community, it's in this idea of everyone owning the idea that I'm a brand ambassador too. It's not just what the marketing department puts out in terms of messaging or the campaigns that they're running, but this idea, people are starting to grasp this idea of every interaction I have with a student is uh, an opportunity to build the brand for the college. So, so there's powerful. definitely this connection happening and it's not perfect. It's a, we're in a growth time period of this, but you can see it and you can feel it happening, which is really exciting. Have, has that student first mindset? It sounds like you're keeping it really front and center in conversations with leadership, not just within your marketing initiatives. Has that also translated to thinking differently about program strategy and what audiences you're looking to reach with Sienna? Or has it in turn enabled you to really stay laser focused on that original population that you've always served when other colleges really have to be like, how do we bring in more grad students? How do we bring in more professionals? How do we bring in more Hispanic students? Because we are shrinking in our traditional populations, which is definitely the case in many different institutions. And so interestingly, it's a bit of both because we're very dedicated. And I think our knowledge about the type of student that chooses and thrives at Siena has grown immensely. But on the other hand, the cliff is coming. 
And right now we serve residential, traditionally aged students, almost exclusively. We have a few grad programs, but the numbers are small, 150, 200 students, something like that. So we are looking at those other audiences. But what's interesting is as as people are looking at different types of programs and different types of audiences, they are coming to us and they are asking for research. They're asking for our perspective. So that to me is a really encouraging sign. Absolutely. And how do you get that perspective? What do you do to get at the core of what students are thinking about and want? We know you have a robust team of interns, which is yes. luxurious that not every marketing department has that. Do you tap those interns for research a lot or do you do additional things like focus groups on campus, surveys? Tell us a little bit about your research method. All of the above. So the interns are a great opportunity. We have 17 right now and we're about to hire another six or seven for a different initiative. And my team is five. The, of prof the professional staff is five. So we've figured out a way to tap into the academic programs here to make our marketing stronger and make it more student-centered by way of the intern. So yes, we use them for in constant feedback loops. So one of the things that came out of our new marketing strategy is one of the guiding principles is everything we do needs student perspective. So I have them look at the letters that go out when someone gets admitted to the college. We have them look at the content we are going to post on social media, everything to get a student perspective. We talk to them about swag, what kind of swag are we giving this? It's everything we can ask a student, we ask a student, and that is really valuable. Another thing I have found to be just an incredible resource is, is having them do the research. Because when a student is running a focus group or a student is interviewing a freshman student who just finished their college search process, different things come out. So we empower them so they get great research experience, but we get great data, right? But we're also running traditional types of things all the time. We're always looking at the enrollment data. We're always looking at what students submit on an application. That is very telling about your audience. We Part of my team is trained to read applications. So we help out with the admissions team and gain a lot of insights in doing so, which I highly recommend, by the way, marketing department, you want to work more closely with admissions, volunteer to help them. And that's a great way to start. But focus groups and surveys and all of that, we're always just looking at the data and collecting the data and an analyzing the data. It was not a one and done intention when we built our new strategy. There has to be this constant loop. It can't be set it and forget it. You have to constantly be looking for it and have to have intentionality about that. If you don't have intentionality about understanding your audience, it's just not going to work. Well, and growth mindsets are so important, right? When you launch a brand new initiative that it, you have to launch it and do the best you can with what you've planned and then figure out like what happens when you do it and then make changes to it. I think that's why the circular nature of it is so important that I think sometimes maybe we can feel like, okay, we made this giant plan. It's going to work perfectly. And it's not going to work perfectly. You're going to nail pieces. Exactly. And other pieces you're going to look at and be like, oh, that could be better. Like, what do we do to fix it? And I just love you saying that like the students are involved in each step of that too, like not just in the creation, but in like, how do we optimize this and make it better? Because that's going to make your strategy, I think, last many years into the future, because you can always focus on your students, but the things about them you may need to focus on may have to change as like new world events happen or other things happen in the lives of those students that are coming into Siena too. Yeah. I mean, it's very tempting to be able to just check off something from the list, right? New marketing plan, check. It's 
But in reality, that's just not what happens. You're spot on. It has, you have to keep growing. You have to keep looking at it and keep going through that cycle. It is never ending. And so that's not a comfortable feeling, maybe, but we have to try to get more comfortable with it to do our best work. It sounds like you have really built a culture of action orientation along with the other leaders at Siena, which maybe a lot of institutions are not as far ahead on, where it is more of that type of situation where the plan gets written, the strategy gets made, and then there's this hope of putting it on autopilot, uh, which is when things fall apart. To related to that, I think there's also always the temptation to be like, oh, we need research. We have to pay a ton of money to an external vendor who's going to give us all the best industry practices and data, which is valid, right? There is value in that. But there's also this incredible untapped population often on college campuses, which is the student. And you're not only going to them, asking them questions about what they want. You're leveraging your students and asking other students what it is that they think about admissions materials and so on. Have you heard that from peers in the industry? That's a common practice. Or do you feel like Sienna is onto something unique or is just able to pull it off really well because of the culture you have? I haven't thought about it as uh, something we do versus something other people may or may not do. I think what I hear most from other colleges is using students as creators, student ambassador teams, tour guides, creating marketing content. But I'm not sure I hear a lot about the feedback loops that we're talking about. And honestly, it's born out of we know we want to be student centered. How can we do that in an authentic way? And this was the solution to doing that to in an authentic way. So it wasn't so much about a higher ed best practice or a higher ed marketing best practice. It was truly how do we need to serve what we're trying to accomplish here? Again, I love that because it's just really focused on the problem in front of you. How do we best solve it? What resources do we have at our disposal? How can we be nimble and work together? Can you take us a little bit into your cross-functional process? I'm so curious to hear a little bit more about sort of day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. How do you collaborate with the different units? Do you have like a standing meeting that everybody goes to where priorities are discussed and action items are assigned? Who leads that? How does that usually go down? A couple different ways. So the first thing is the team that worked to form the marketing strategy continues to work on advancing it and moving it forward. And so people who were in the room and understand all the data that underlies it, they, some of them volunteer to be team leads. So there's different themes or sort of tactics within the strategy that they lead. And then they built out the action items each year. But they have now brought in new people, wider people, because who it's whoever you need to be able to advance this, to be able to do the action. So our leads meet once a month, and then the full team that is working on these projects meets once a month. So we have these sort of check-ins. But also, when there's a problem or a challenge, we just bring everyone together to work it out. So we wanted to recently work on what happens from a student and family perspective when they sign up for a visit what happens when they apply, and what happens when they get admitted. And so we brought together everybody. We did some structured brainstorming and some structured decision-making based off of that. And that's how we advanced those. And a lot of that stuff ended up going into the marketing plan, right? It just it just makes sense. So there's this synchronicity between 
what needs to happen because we're seeing something that needs to needs attention and getting it into the official plan, so to speak. And the way we structured those brainstorms, I thought was really unique. We started with, okay, I just signed up for a visit, a tour, say. I just signed up for a tour. I'm a student. I'm a high school junior, let's say. How am I feeling and what do I need? That's where we started. We didn't start with what should we, what do we want them to say? Or what do we want to say to them? We started with what do they need and how are they feeling? And what we, we think they should care about based on what yeah. we care about. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we caught some great things. We caught some things we're doing wrong. Like we're, we look at it, we're like, that's not student centered. That's about us. They need to know where to park so that they feel less anxious when they pull in the parking lot. Simple things like that, but you might skip over them if you haven't done the work of trying to put yourself in their shoes. And how do you also think through the parent audience in this setup, right? Because obviously student experience is super important, but the parents are right there with them, yep. potentially influencing the decision. So I'd love to hear more about that. So for all of those points, as an example, we would go through into student and then we'd go through into parent. So my student has just signed up for a visit. What has happened? My student just got into Siena. What is happening? How am I feeling? What do I need? And we discovered some great opportunities. We're going to send out a parent admit letter this year. Oh, cool. And a student will get their own and then in the mail. Is is the goal for them to show up at the same time and then they can like open them together or will they show up? It might be. We haven't decided for sure if we're going to go for same day or a one-two punch. We might let the student have their moment and follow a day or two later with the parent is might be how we do it. We're still working out the operational side. But for some students, we can't do this for all 6,000 that we will admit this year. But for some students, we have targeted groups that we're selecting. We will actually personalize a line in the parent letter saying what we recognized as an achievement for their student or something we're really excited about seeing them do at Sienna, do at Siena or what really stood out about Allison was her leadership of X and X club. So we're going to personalize a line in it for as many of the families as we can. But it's really to, because this is a family moment. It's right. not just a student moment. So thinking about that too. How much does being Catholic live at the forefront of your thinking when you're doing marketing for Siena at this moment where maybe Catholic liberal education is being questioned or it's just it's not maybe a a natural choice for many anymore? So I'm super curious how you think through that piece, how you're trying to appeal to people who are Catholic and who are looking for that type of education specifically, but then also people who are maybe not. and, And how do you pull them in and convince them that this is the place for them as well? Oh, I think we don't lead in messaging with Catholic and Franciscan. We lead with the values because the values really resonate with people. So Franciscan values include compassionate leadership, and that's about putting others first and leading not by title, right, but leading in action, inclusivity, innovation. St. Francis, if you know anything about him, he was He was definitely an innovator. I mean, he was doing things drastically different than anyone else was approaching spreading the gospel, right? So in in his time, people probably thought he was nuts. I mean, he really was an innovator. So there's innovation. There's this idea of lifelong learning that it's never done and being other-centered, thinking about the whole person. So these are concepts people are looking for and I think people connect with. So we really work on the concepts, but it's not just about saying those things. I think we try to show. 
because showing is always more important than telling. So we try to show how we're compassionate leaders, for instance, and how other-centered we are in our approach to recruiting students. We ask them a lot of one-to-one personal kind of questions to get to know them on a one-to-one level. And that is really powerful. And that shows the type of experience they can expect at Siena, right? So rather than just trying to tell them, we think about in our marketing and our admissions and recruitment efforts, how do we show who we are and show the type of community they will be part of in our behavior? Behavior is brand. I think I said that earlier in our behavior and how we approach them. So that I think is so much more powerful than just having a perfect way to talk about it, right? Or yeah, a perfect message to send. Interesting how you're talking about that because there are these two terms that we're exploring in the book in the brand section and their brand anthropology and brand journalism. Brand anthropology being exactly what you were just saying, looking at St. Francis and how did he lead and how did that inspire the Franciscan order and how are we bringing that into the present day, right? So what is the essence of the brand that has always been there? And then how it is applied in today's world is expressed through things like storytelling, which brand journalism is the term we're playing around with there, right? It's not just PR or communication. It's really taking those students' stories and faculty and parent stories and telling them in a way that is very much not salesy, right? That's very impact-based and authentic. So it sounds like those methodologies are at play at at your campus, even if they're not the terms that you're using necessarily. Yeah, I think where storytelling comes into play for us, we have great storytelling, especially internally. We have this thing called the scoop. It goes out every other week and it has these great stories. It's just chock full. So there's no lack of stories where we really try to make sure we're using them in the most powerful way is one-to-one. So if we can get a student to answer an email to us about what are you envisioning for your college experience? When you close your eyes and picture, what are some of the things? Or what are some of the things you know you don't want from your college experience? So if we can zero in on what's important to that student, then we can use the story that best connects to that student's desires, right? And what they're looking for. Instead of trying to say everything to that student about what might happen at Siena. So let's find out their thing. Is their thing sports? Is there a thing research? Is there a thing? Instead of trying to say all of that all the time to every student. So that's what we really try to get down to when I say personal recruitment. It's not just like we're mail merging their name and their major into an email. Like we're really trying to understand them on a one-to-one personal basis. So then we can talk about Sienna in a way that resonates. That's, I mean, that takes a lot of discovery. It's a lot of work. Data, (laughs) hygiene, as well as just hours to to do that type of personal outreach. And you said you have five people on your team. Yep. I'm assuming you work with admissions. On yes, the team. admissions team does a lot of this, but we help. We have different inboxes that, so sometimes we help out by answering as the director of admissions or whatever it needs to be, because we're all trained on how to do this. So we jump in when needed. You work as one team to get the job done because this is the most powerful way we can market. And this is the most powerful way we can introduce people to what it means to be a saint and the Sienna brand. It's just incredible because I think I've seen marketing teams that are 30 people deep or bigger not being able to pull off what you just described. So it is really impressive. Well, it's all about it's all about knowing what needs to be done, right? So you're not 
you don't do everything. You have to figure out what's not working and take it off. And you got to zero in on what's truly needed in this What makes moment. the difference, right? What makes the difference? Like, it, like we're yeah. seeing at the beginning, it's a visit. It's a personal communication with the yeah. student. It's figuring out what exactly is it that they care about and then just being consistent and being there at the right time. This podcast is sponsored by Viv Higher Education, a Boston-based women-owned consulting firm and marketing agency for colleges and universities. Viv specializes in integrating content and paid media strategies to drive brand awareness and enrollment growth. You can learn more about Viv at vivhighered.com, that's V-I-V-H-I-E.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. Talk a little yeah. bit about your dissertation research around how much it matters to, I think you looked a little bit at email, right? And like, what's most impactful on the email front? Is that right? Um, like, I remember you talking about like, very simple email versus these like bells and whistle. Well, that's how we get them to respond. And we build these personal relationships. We send out a really simple email. So I'll give you an example. When a student applies to Sienna, We'll send out an email from their school, from, sorry, their Siena admissions counselor, not their school counselor. And the Siena admissions counselor will say, I'm about to start reviewing your application materials, but I know that the data and the curriculum, that's pretty one-dimensional. What else do you want me to know about you as I go into this? The students answer that question. And, and then we know answering about the questions. I remember that yeah. now. It's so brilliant. Yeah. Asking them questions, they will respond. What a concept. Yeah. Yeah. And the key is to not screw it up by put, putting all these links in there and all this messaging in there. Like just purely let it sit and be about the student. That's really hard because as a marketer, it's tempting for me to put three paragraphs in there about why I'm asking this question and, and try to connect the dots for them. I don't need to say, though, that because I'm, ask, I'm asking this because this is the way we are at Siena. We're personal. We tailor your experience. That's tempting, right? To tell them, we don't have to tell them. They be, they know it by that interaction. So it's truly, that the hardest thing, honestly, is to keep an email simple, but that's what we do. Yeah, I can see how that would be really hard. And I can see how it would be hard to sell others on that approach unless you have the data, right? And you can show that it worked. Well, that's, that's you do we, now. We tra well, we track every single interaction we have a student, with a student. So we know that, I think the last time I ran it, the students that do this one-on-one -on -one back and forth are 2.4 times more likely to enroll. Wow. Perfect. It's worth it. Power employee. Yeah. It, it's really powerful how you and your team are able to like fuse qualitative interactions and like qualitative data with quantitative data mm -hmm. to tell the story to stakeholders. Because I think sometimes people can feel like they need to lean into like one more than the other, but it's actually no both of them because you are talking to different people who may gra like grasp onto a certain part of what you're sharing with them. And that may be the way that they connect and understand like this is the thing that we need to be doing going into the back half of this decade. Yeah. And it helps you focus your work, right? So there's things we've had to shift around. There's things we've had to let go of in order to do this and to scale this, because scaling is a whole other animal when it comes to this. But and so instead of thinking, well, this is impossible, we don't have the time, because I, clearly it's time intensive, right? We think, how can we? What do we have to do to be able to free up the time so that our admissions counselors can do this work? So admissions is really a completely different 
job here at Siena than it was, say, four or five years ago, right? It's really changed. Their job duties have. Can you give us some examples of things that you've stopped doing in order to make time to do this personal outreach? Super curious about that. Well, one thing we've stopped doing is, well, not stopped doing, but we're very careful about our travel, very strategic about our travel. So travel has changed immensely in the last, say, decade here at Siena. Another thing we've changed is sticking to silos. Like, I'm a marketing person, so this is my job. We just don't care. Whatever needs to be done is what gets done. So sometimes it's not about letting go of things. Sometimes it's about being able to shift the work because there are times of high volume where this group needs this help. So you jump in and you do that. It doesn't mean that we need to switch an entire marketing position over to admissions or vice versa. You just help at the times that, are, that need help. We trained the marketing and admissions team big time on financial aid so that they could do base level triage and then send up to a financial aid counselor. We only have three financial aid counselors to serve all 6,000 admitted students plus the current students. That, that's insane, right? So that's what we did. We trained the admissions team and the marketing team to be able to help at that first level and recognize when it needs that deeper conversation with a financial aid counselor. So training and interdepartmental training has been huge too. You make it sound easy when you say we broke down those silos and everybody works together now. It probably requires a lot of leadership to get people to abandon that territorial thinking and egos around, well, this is my direct report. I should be able to dictate how they spend their time, right? Which would hold an institution back from pulling something like this off. So kudos to you all. Leadership, but even more culture, right? We've worked really hard on building a culture um, and a closeness among the team to feel like we're all in this together. It doesn't matter which department I'm in. Yeah, and to that end, do you and your fellow leaders spend a lot of time going on, I don't want to call it a roadshow, but presenting these ideas over and over again to the campus community and championing them on the one hand around the actual methods where you're like, here's the data. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we're not doing what we're not doing. And on the other hand, also the values, right? Those values of cross-cultural, cross-functional collaboration and breaking down silos. Or is that at this point so natural to everyone at Siena that it doesn't require a lot of reinforcement? I don't think it's natural. I think we have to keep doing it, right? Because it's not, doesn't feel normal. It doesn't always feel comfortable. So you do have to keep working at it. And the best way to do is set the example, right? So if we're doing it and other people are seeing us do it, then we can take that. Or when we're, we're on an initiative that crosses another division, then we're bringing what we've learned from within our division to that initiative. So it's got to be really organic, right? Because if it ever feels preachy, like I'm going to come in here and I'm going to say, this is how we should be collaborating and this is how we should just not worry about, that's not going to be good. So working, for instance, on a student-centered initiative across divisions is a really great way to approach this because, again, you're centering on the student and not on the institution or not your department and not yourself. So it, it frees up everyone's mind to think, okay, how, what do we need to do to accomplish this? How do we accomplish this? And you do that together. So I think you have to keep working on it. I think you have to find projects 
that allow for that to happen. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense that you have to keep working at it because it is uncomfortable and the natural inclination would maybe be to protect your self-interest. And I absolutely love how you put that leading by example rather than being preachy is the way to go. If you put yourself in the shoes of maybe an emerging leader in higher education, someone who is deciding, hey, I love this work. I want to dedicate my career to it. What advice would you give them uh, around how to really show up every day and work towards being at their full potential and, and leading by example? So our field's changing all the time. We all know that, right? So whatever is emerging, become the expert in that thing. Grab it. Don't You don't have to wait to get assigned something. You can raise your hand and say, I can see how AI might be impactful here. I'm going to explore that and bring that back. Raise your hand. So that's what that's how I've done it my whole career from social media, which wasn't a thing when I started. I raised my hand. I figured that out. CRM, raised my hand. I figured that out. Gen Z was a huge difference, right, between the millennials and Gen Z. Okay, I'll be the Gen Z expert. Raise your hand and do that. So find those things. You don't have to wait for someone else to recognize that there's something that needs someone's mind, someone's work, an expert on it, become that expert and own the job you have. Instead of worrying too much about the next job, own the job you have, because then when there is that opening, people are going to be looking at you. And what do you think that you would tell like this person who's an emerging leader about um, pushing against imposter syndrome or the thought that they have to know everything about something before they can go do it. Because I think that in the workforce generally, like that can be something that's a barrier to people where they're like, well, I don't know anything about that. So how can I go figure it out? Yeah, I I totally agree. And it's hard. So you got to pump yourself up, right? You have to give yourself that confidence. For me, I find knowledge to be power. So get dive in to whatever you can find on the topic or the initiative that you have an opportunity with. And then you'll feel more confident because you will have that knowledge backing up what you're saying. You'll have the data backing up what you're saying. But also know that mistakes are just opportunities. We're all going to make mistakes. I have made mistakes. I have sent out print jobs with proofreading errors on them. I have something has gone to the wrong audience. We are not perfect human beings. And so you have to allow yourself to make mistakes and know that it's okay to make mistakes because you're not going to be able to push in your professional development without making mistakes because then you're just playing it safe. You're going to have to take some risks. You're going to have to put yourself out there and you have to be willing to fail, but learn from it. That's right. where the that's where the good stuff happens. Like the fail forward type of yeah, fail mentality forward. where it's like, well, I made a mistake. I'm going to keep going though, because now at least I have the learnings from that experience that I can take forward for myself, but that I can also pass on to other people. Yeah. We made a huge mistake last year. We backed off of a message that we use because there was some pressure perhaps to back off of that message because it was um, really focused on price and cost. And it, people would rather us focus on messages that are more about prestige, right? Or something that we can be a bit, bit more proud of. So we backed off on it and it didn't work. It didn't push through FASA filers and apps and emits the way that we would have liked to see. So we risked it though. We said, okay, we're going to test our market position and we're going to test and we're going to back off on this and we'll see. It's okay. 
no, he's fired right now. But it was right. People think they right. will get fired over such yeah. small mistakes, but that's not the case. If well, higher ed doesn't like to fire people anyway, but if there are problems with performance, it's usually around lacking what you just described. Is that like curiosity and action orientation and confidence to push forward? Right. It's not like you won't make mistakes, but you have. I might to have been action. right. What if they were right? That would have been great finding too. But either way, we had a strong finding. We have data now. We have extra insight uh, and more confidence in the way we think we need to approach it. Yeah, I also think you never learn more deeply than when you have a mistake happen. Oh, yeah. It just sticks with you in a different way. The, the typo in the subject line, yeah, yeah grabbing oh, yeah. the wrong list that you're sending an email to. Emails are so hard because you can't take them back. You can't edit them. Oh, no, yeah. Print job, same thing. The type of the wrong date or the wrong QR code on the print shop. A job that happened to it's happened to me. Yeah, so, there's nothing yeah. like a reoccurring nightmare to make sure it doesn't ever happen again. Uh huh. And then when you're in the middle of doing like a new project on the same thing that you messed up, and like you're like, well, look at my like my process is different, but you're also inside yeah. like I'm just so nervous that this is going to yeah. happen again. Yeah, or another, I mean, those mistakes are always hard because they just seem really careless, right? And they're so preventable. But but we all know it wasn't. And then they're like the strategic mistakes, like you were just describing, sending a different message and realizing or we worked on a campaign once where we're really convinced that we just needed to put a calendar link. This was for an executive audience. Like we needed to put a calendar link in the emails because then surely people would book calls with the enrollment counselors. And that was our whole strategy was to to drive people to take those, to, to book those calendar appointments. But it turns out that when you're doing top of the funnel campaigns, people are not ready to talk. Yes, yes, yes. Counselor. And so we got like three calls out of the campaign and we're like, okay, we need to revise our content strategy here. And we have to engage people before we ask them to pick up the phone. There it's is so some fascinating. great lessons for higher ed right in there. Before I know, you know, ask them to visit, before you ask them to, to apply. apply, there's other things, other relationship building that yes. has to occur. <laughs> yeah, our senior media, media strategist always tells us, uh, apply now is a big ask. Make sure yes. you don't ask people to do that before you've engaged and connected with them. Yeah. Yes. And there, there will be different students at different times who are ready for that. So that's really hard, too, is understanding your audience and, okay, who should I be telling apply now to right now? And who should I be holding on that? Yeah. yeah. We're working and on that. We don't have that down. Yeah. We're, that's okay. something we're thinking about and working on, though. I wouldn't assume that many have that down, but that I think the more you can leverage data in, in those decisions, but at scale, it's difficult to leverage data always unless you have the technology built out perfectly and the algorithms are perfect, which I don't think they are anywhere. But yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Where can people stay connected with you online? You have a ton of stuff going on. Tell us how people can find you and connect with you. I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place to connect with me. You can also catch my podcast on the Enrollify Network. It's called The Application. So you can find that anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Also, I publish a biweekly newsletter called The Higher Ed Marketer's Digest, where I curate all of the best content and thought leadership in our industry. I put it in one place for you and I send it out. So you get all the best links just in one place because I find it myself very overwhelming to log on to Twitter or LinkedIn and I'm like, wow, there's so much to read here. There's so much to watch here. So I do my best to try to get it all in one place and make it easier for you. 
What an amazing service to the higher ed marketing community. I know I read it every other week when it comes out. It comes out every other week, right? Every other okay, Thursday. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. And I'm always so excited and I click on things that, yeah, thank you on behalf of all of us for doing that work. It's no, no, no small amount of work. You can and sign up for it at alisontercio.com. Amazing. And we know you're also often at conferences, AMA, Symposium for Higher Education Marketing, as well as others. So you're definitely out there in the higher ed marketing world doing great things. Thank Thanks. you so much for spending time with us today. We really enjoyed it so much. This was a really fun and informative conversation. Me too. My favorite topic, higher ed marketing. Thank you for joining us on this episode today. If you found value in our conversation, don't forget to subscribe to Higher Ed Leaders so you never miss an episode. Do leave a rating or review that really helps us get this podcast into the hands of those doing the transformative work of higher education leadership. And please do follow our company, Viv Higher Education, on LinkedIn or visit us at vivhighered.com. That's V-I-V-H-I-E-D.com. We will also be talking about our episodes using the hashtag Hired Leaders Podcast, and we will see you next time.